Welcome to Another Opening, a podcast devoted to theatrical endeavors, most on hold at this time due to the coronavirus. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Join me as I interview actors, directors, designers, and techies on hiatus from theaters in Rhode Island and nearby Massachusetts. Bob Colonna, actor, director, narrator, and performer for over 55 years. He began his career on the British variety stage with his father, beloved comedian and trombone player, Jerry Colonna. Many of you in Rhode Island and Massachusetts count him among your friends. He was the winner of the Claiborne Pell Award for Excellence in the Arts for 2007. I recently shared morning coffee with Bob and his delightful parrot, Pistachio, via Zoom. Please join us. Before we begin, Bob, um, I um, did a little research online, and I understand that you and I um, share a birthday. Well, actually, we share an unbirthday. So this is for both of us. A very merry birthday to me. To who? To me. Oh, you. A very merry birthday to you. Who, me? Yes, you. Oh, me. Let's all congratulate us with another cup of tea. A very merry birthday. Um, we'll talk about that a little later, but I, I <laughs> so if there's anyone listening who doesn't know anything about Bob, uh, why don't you just give me a little curriculum vitae that about you have uh, performed coast to coast. Uh, you have been involved in many local theaters, both as a director, producer, uh, and actor, of course. So tell us a little bit about, you know, your, your wide ranging uh, career. <laughs> well. It's not that wide ranging, but um, of course, I, I grew up in, in California, in in LA, Studio City in the Valley, because as you, if, according to that that uh, uh, song you just played, that was my dad, Jerry Colonna, who was, um, who was a uh, he was a he was famous in the sidekick category for a long time, uh, during the '30s and the '40s particularly, and he was associated with Bob Hope, and he did a lot of. Um, much, much traveling, much work on the GI circuit. Uh, he was on the very first Bob Hope tours, which was the South Pacific during uh, World War II. And, um, you know, you always think of the Hope tour as being, uh, you know, the Les Browns band and uh, Pretty Girls and all that stuff. This was six people, period. That included a writer. Okay, included the band, which was Tony Romano on the guitar. It was uh, Bob and Dad, Frances Langford, beautiful woman and singer, and a girl named Patty Thomas, who was a cute dancer. And that was the, that was the troupe. It was Bob, uh, Dad, um, Frances, Patty, uh, Tony, and Barney. And they would get in these little planes, and the, the Army uh, or the Air Force or wherever would fly them. 
And they mostly, that first tour was mostly at the islands. And they played all these, you know, places that were, that you never heard of, uh, which would be like, I'd be a thousand guys, you know, stuck on an island. And they were so grateful to have the, the, the at one point they were, they, they, to get them on the island, they had to fly them in individual Piper Cubs, like one person at a time. And as they flew over, uh, Bob talked about this on TV a, a few years ago. As they flew over, the guys cheered, and you could feel the plane go up a little, just, oh. just, from, the, just from the energy of these guys yelling, you know. And they had all manner of, of um, uh, adventures. They, they crashed in the water uh, off the coast of Australia at one point. I mean, went down right in the, just, just off the coast. And um, they were getting out of the plane into the water and they saw a fishing uh, boat coming around the, 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 the spit, you know, several yards or a hundred yards away. So they had dad yelled, help! And the guy came putting over and he sees these six people and the pilot all in the water and the wind curves of the tail of the plane has the American flag on it. And so this guy comes right over and leans over the rail of his boat. And this is the first thing he actually says is, have you got any American cigarettes? Truth story. <laughs> well, you need what you need, you know. Yeah, right, right. No, they had, they had fabulous adventures and they, um, they remained, I would say that that experience, the World War II experience bonded uh, Bob and my dad to, a, to an extent that uh, very few people have, a kind of bonding very few people have. When Dad passed on, he paid, he he was at the uh, Motion Picture Hospital, uh, which doesn't exist anymore. Motion Picture and Television Hospital in Woodland Hills. But anyway, um, uh, he was off. He was off all the tubes. He was off everything. He was uh, he was in coma. And Bob finally arrived. He'd been in Japan, and he went in. Mom let him in to see Dad. And Mom, she said, she told me that she just left him in there, and he was there for like an hour just talking. This Bob was just talking, and he when he left, after half an hour later, Dad let go. But he'd been waiting for Bob. That's a very sweet story, Bob. I'm Joe. I'm, now you got me going. Bob, and Bob, so you're Bob too. There's too many Bobs here. Yeah, my, Joe is Joe is my is my son. I have a son, Joe. Oh, you do. I have a, I, in fact, I have a son, Joe. Let me sh show off a little bit here. Please. He is, uh, he's in the healthcare uh, racket. And oh yes, yes, I've seen that. I did see that you posted it on your Facebook page. Uh, yes, that's so great, isn't that great? Yeah. Well, my my wife is in the business too, and it's a little scary now because she's continuing to see patients on an emergency basis, and so yeah. you know, bringing that kind of home. And she's she's not young; she's my age, so this is not a good. We'll talk a little bit about coronavirus later, or maybe not at all. But you, so you start well, you having on, my name attached to a disease like that, you know. <laughs> oh God! Yes, I forgot that Bob yeah. coronavirus. Uh, That's anyway, right. So um, you did. You started out. Uh, you actually were on stage uh, at, at with your father at, at some venues. Or well, yes, a couple of times. Um, he, when I was fifteen, he was touring the British Isles, and his dad had a weird career. Like he had, he was a very, he was very, very big during the thirties and the forties and the fifties. He hit a, uh, just a slump, terrible career slump. But 
they loved him in England. They just couldn't get enough of him. So he went over and he got uh, booked uh, on a, like a five or six week tour of the, uh, the provinces. And he did that one year. And then the following year, he went back and he took mom and me with him. And he gave me a spot in the show, um, which, was, uh, which was kind of fun. Now, I don't know if you can see this, but can you see that photograph? Yeah. Oh, yes. And you, again, have posted that, Yeah. I think, just a couple of days ago or maybe a week ago. Yeah. So we, that, was, that was the bit that, uh, that I did with him in the show. And uh, I was, you know, he had... He had me come on for a couple of minutes and do a couple of gags, and uh, that was that was great fun. And I, and it was vaudeville. That was the thing. It was there was no vaudeville here anymore, and over there it was still happening. It was called Variety, and this show, these show, we do two a day, two shows a day, uh, and there were like ten acts, and I mean jugglers and singers and. Uh, a cowboy at one point and all these different, you know, characters, wonderful characters. And I stood, I would stand in the wings every night and watch the whole show. I just, oh, I loved it. Just loved it. They, they were, and they were wonderful people, you know, just very, very wonderful people. Magicians, there was a guy that did uh, impressions, you know, which I stole his whole act. Uh, <laughs> when I came back, you know, I was in high school, I said, well, watch this, you know, always <laughs> doing his, his act. Um, yeah, his billing was Mr. Everybody. I remember that. But, uh, yeah, and of course, um, then uh, uh, I, was, I was in my 20s, and I was kind of at loose ends, and I think Dad was kind of worried about me, you know. So he called me. I was living in San Diego, and he called me up, and he said, he, he, by this point, he was working in uh, uh, the, the, the Nevada clubs. And he was working in the, at the Tropicana in Vegas and at Harris Club in uh, Reno and Lake Tahoe. And he had a great act. It was really, it was a, you know, and he had to do, when I say he had a great act, he had to do four up to five shows a night with these things. A different show, had to be a different show every time. And he had a great band and all that. And he had a chance to really to do what he loved to do, which was play the trombone. I mean, this, this, was, this was his first love. And he was a he was a marvelous uh, trombone player, as you've probably heard. He was when he, in his early in his career, he was regarded as one of the five top trombone players in America. And here is a, a shot. Are you catching that? I am. Oh, because this just this went off here. There Let's we see. go. We lost yeah. your picture, but we got you. Oh, oh, wow. Yeah. So that's that's before comedy or anything. Yeah, that was his love. By the way, just below that, this is that's the picture that was on the wall in Sardis. Huh. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, so he was, you know, he was he he. Now that he had the, um, he put a band back together again, and he did some singing and comedy in the act, but mostly it was music. And it was a great it was a great act. So then he called me and he said, "I want you want to, I want you to work with me." And I think he was, it was more like he wanted to know where I was and what I was doing. <laughs> so he put me into the act and he, in the first day of rehearsal, he said, now, what can you do? <laughs> Not a good time to find that out. What, is well, it, can well, you juggle? Well, what, what can you do? Well, it was a logical question because he knew I wasn't musical. 
I didn't have a very good ear. I couldn't really sing, you know, and I, I played no instruments. And, but I could do patter stuff like I did. I, I've been doing stuff in college, like Trouble in River City, you know, that kind of number. And so he, that's what I did in the act, some stuff like that. Little patter with him, but mostly, you know. And at this point, I was 250 pounds. Oh, big guy. And I had a big black beard. Oh. And um, so, uh, uh, you know, the people were a little surprised that you know, he would say, I'm going to introduce my son. And then this character walked out, you know. And um, he used to do a bit at the end of the act after a while. He would say, people ask if this is really my son. If not, he owes me 24 years rent. But don't bow. Yeah. And then he went on with it. He said, room and board. Mostly bored. Large room, and I would yell, "All right!" <laughs> like Ralph crammed it. You know? <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Well, so you began obviously getting. Uh, you were sort of born, almost born out of a trunk, if you will. So you're a, a classic child of theater folk. Uh, oh yeah, and then in school, you know, even from grammar school and certainly high school and college, that's all I cared about. I mean, I went to a, I went to Marquette University only because they had a really good theater. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time, which that, 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 that was, and for a short time, just a few years, there was a guy named Father John J. Walsh who ran uh, a th he ran an unusual theater for th for college, <clears throat> in that he wasn't interested in college theater. He he was training professional actors. Nice. And he had worked with uh, he had, he had trained and he had studied. Now he was a Jesuit priest. And he had studied uh, with Maria Uspinskaya. Now, she is, you know who that is? Okay. I know that name. I sure do. And she was with the Moscow Art Theater. So I am, because of him, I am two degrees from Stanislavski. <laughs> you can't tell it, but, you know. <laughs> um, and so I, I you know, I, I, I got wonderful training in college. Um, I was... Of all the people in our college theater, I think I was the most difficult to teach because I was so stuck with, I was hammy and I was, sure. you know, all of that kind of stuff. And this was, you know, this was the real deal. This was the, the concentration and the uh, bring up the, you know, working with your own emotions and all that kind of this stuff. This is method. This is serious method. It, it was the method. And I was terrible at it, <laughs> but I still, but I still absorbed it, you know. And even when I, I left college after a couple of years, they threw me out because I wasn't doing anything but going to the theater. Yep. So I was skipping all my other classes and all that kind of stuff. And that was one of the reasons that dad pulled me into, uh, into being his act because I got checked out of college and he, was, he didn't know what I was, you know, what I could do. Um, I had an interesting conversation with my son, Joe, a while ago. Joe is the, Joe is the wise man of the family. He's the one that... Uh, He's the one that uh, uh, oh, oh, I'm getting. I'm going to plug my phone in. I have a low battery. Oh, okay. I'm um, That's there. You go. Okay. I think we'll see what happens. Looks good. Um, but Joe is. I always say he's the only one with brains. You know, he has a he has a a, um, a, a regular job and a very very good one. He's a you know and he's he's just a, he's the guy. He's the guy. And I was talking to him and I was kind of talking about, I always felt that, you know, my folks were very disappointed in me for a lot of reasons. And, uh, you know, they wanted me to, uh, they, they didn't like that I flunked out of college. 
Um, I have, I've had kind of a scattered, I'm a bit of a scatterbrain, you know, and I had an interesting life, but uh, a lot of, um, the kind of stuff your folks don't, you know, they're not crazy about when you keep getting divorced, for example, you know, things like that. And, but I was, I was kind of whining to Joe and I said, I, I think, I think dad always was very disappointed in me. And he said, he trusted you. He trusted you with his act to be, to be, to, to, you know, to, uh, he, he could have lost up his whole career, but he trusted you to do well. And he was, and he, when I finally, after working with him in, in the Vegas and all that stuff for about a year and a half, I said, I really have to go back to the theater. I can't keep doing this. And dad said an amazing thing. He, he said, you, well, you, you did well enough that you have, you, you think you can walk away clean. You know, so that was, that was really something. Um, I'll tell you a story. I, the thing I was most afraid of, of course, doing when I was working with him is that people would get angry. That people would say, you know, my kid, I, I, I spent thousands of dollars on accordion lessons and couldn't get him on uh, television, you know. And this kid, this, this no-talent kid gets to walk around on the stage just because his father is blah, blah, blah. You know? And that didn't happen. Uh, people were very, very welcoming. Uh, one of the things is I didn't do anything like him at all, as opposed to, say, you know, Frankie Jr., um, who had his own uh, act at those days. And all he did was sing his father's material, his father's arrangements, which, right? Yeah, right. not, not, not such a great idea. But. No, no. Um, <laughs> not when your so, father's Frank Sinatra. No. Not a good idea. So, but in, and so I wasn't trying to do, I, I'm nothing like my dad, and I didn't do anything like, and of course, he, my father was a very unique character anyway. And, but uh, they, people accepted it, you know, we, the, the, the show went well, uh, they liked my material, they liked the, 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 the kind of uh, show tunes that I was doing and stuff like that, and it was fine. So it was fine for about a year. And then one night we were in San Juan at the Americana Hotel in the lounge there doing the act. And you couldn't see the audience. They were all in the dark, way in the dark. And I did my first, I was, I did my first bit and I was transitioning to a talk piece that I would do. And all of a sudden out in the dark, I heard this woman go, why don't you get off the stage? We came to see your father, not you. Right? So I actually felt the hair go up in the back of my neck. I mean, I actually, actually felt that. And I just, I was standing out in the middle of the dance floor, although I mean, it was that, that, it was that kind of deal. When Mike, just a mic, the bandstand was in back. Dad was on the stand with the band. I was essentially alone. And I just went, thank you, madam. And I started to walk away from the mic and I thought, no. I came back and I said, now for the rest of you, I'd like to finish my act. Big applause. And then she wouldn't shut up. Hey, I thought I told you. To... And I was not here, <clears throat> you know, like somebody, somebody took care of her. After, now, my father was a typical Italian male father. There are two kinds. They're the ones that yell and scream and the ones that never talk. And he was the quiet one. Very, very quiet, you know very unexpressed, very little. I went 
into uh, after the after the, the the set. I went into his dressing room and I said, because um, I I, wanted, I was still shaken, you know. And I said, um, listen, uh, I wasn't too fresh out there, was I? I mean, was it all right? And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, with well, that lady, you know. He said, oh no, that was fine. That was fine. And suddenly his hand snaked out and he grabbed the back of my neck and he just, and, and that was it. That's all he did. And I went into my dressing room and I cried. You know? I mean, I adored him. Absolutely adored him. And to get that kind of um, approval, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was something. <laughs> We want, I'll, we want to come back. These are great stories. I want to hear some more about that. Just uh, Let's just briefly go through. Uh, as I said, you have been uh, working. Oh, 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 me. Okay. Well, well I've got to do a little of you. I've got to do a little of you. But I do, I do love what you've, what you've given us so far. But you have, um, uh, what, uh, rather than going through the whole curriculum vitae here, uh, which people who know you know it, and those who don't can look it up online. What, what do you, it's a hard question for anyone who's done many things in the theater, but what, if you had to, you're, you, you're forced to pick acting, directing, uh, uh, producing, uh, running a theater, you run the, the, the uh, Shakespeare companies in, in existence since 1971, I believe, or yep. 70s here in Rhode Island, and, mm -hmm. and you have been coast to coast uh, working regional theaters and, and uh, smaller venues, etc. But what what are you most proud? What are, when you say, "Gee, I love that show. I love this show. Or that character. That character." Does it usually come from your acting experience or your uh, directing experience? Well, I had to say two things. One was the years working with Adrian Hall at Trinity Rep were irreplaceable. I mean, all of us who were there during the day it was about a ten-year stretch or a little longer, about fifteen years, I guess. We're all together, where we were privileged and we knew it. We were getting to work. Uh, we were doing work that was not being done anywhere else. We were doing work that was breakthrough and astonishing and dangerous. Adrian Hall was a brilliant man, still is, uh, but he's, he doesn't, he's not working now. But he was, uh, and he was a, a terrific eccentric. He was a tall, lanky guy from Texas with a terrific stammer. And, and he, when he would direct, I mean, everybody that worked with him, you know, sooner or later did a bit about him. Oh, and, of course. And, and, and a malaprop. That was the other thing. And one of the, the, the great ones, I think Timmy Crow used to do this about, about Adrian, which is one time, he really said this one time, he says, and, 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 and the, 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 he just comes swooping down there, you know, like one of them, one of those uh, Kama Sutra pilots. <laughs> Oh my goodness gracious! That's, yeah, yeah. That's great. and that was typical. I mean, that, we got used to it, you know. But I have but heard, it, I've seen things at Trinity, but not during that period. That was um, like actually, he was uh, in his heyday when I it was just getting here, so I was not, you know, even going as an audience member. But I have seen things at Trinity, and Trinity is a is a is a gift, is a jewel. It's it's a marvelous theater, and it's. Um, but right these days, it is a marvelous theater, but it is not a remarkable. It is not, that's the battery again. It's not a remarkable theater the way it was. It was 
um, it got on the map through Adrian because we did things that um, nobody would do. Like we were doing a lot of shows in the, the old RISD Auditorium, which was a great big space. And we did, I remember we did um, Billy Budd, for example, uh, which the audience was really on the ship. I mean, that's, that's how it felt, you know. They were, and we shot cannon at them. You know, um, the most amazing, I think the, the, the breakthrough show was a show called Brother to Dragons, which was from a script by Robert Penn Warren. And the story was, an, it was a true story that a nephew of Thomas Jefferson's uh, went nuts and killed a slave by chopping him to death systematically because he broke something that had belonged to Tom, that belonged to Jefferson's nephew's mother. And so Robert Penn Warren did a beautiful um, verse drama of this. It was never meant to be staged because it was theoretically impossible, you know? Eugene Lee, that was his first year at, at Trinity. And Richard Cumming and Adrian all got their heads together and they figured out how to do this. And how they did it was that at the point in the play where the murder was going to take place, uh, Ed Hall, who was a, an African-American actor, wonderful actor, they hung him upside down by his heels at the, at the side of the stage. And they brought out the chopping block. And, it was, and the, the, the whole thing, of course, being a poem, was narrated all the time, mostly by uh, Lilburn's younger brother, Isham. And Isham is, is narrating this. Sorry about the whistling. <laughs> anyway, um, he's narrating this, and he says, uh, uh, "Well, they used the N word and so forth." But anyway, he curled up on the block like he was, like he thought maybe he, if he got real small, they wouldn't couldn't get him. Anyway, um, so what happened visually was uh, he, uh, uh, Lilburn says, "Put the man here," and they brought out a shoulder of beef. Oh man and slapped it onto the chopping block. Then he took his ax and he said, this is the last black hand by God that will make my mother grieve. Whacked into the meat, Ed, Ed, Ed hanging upside down starts screaming. Um, uh, the narration goes, uh, and then the hand, the hand went into the fire and the chorus on stage all went And so then in the foot, the foot went into the fire and then everything, everything went into the fire. And the, Hissing finally stopped, and they took Ed down and put him on a pole like a deer with his, from his ankles and wrists and paraded him through the audience and out. And that was the end of the first act. <laughs> Anybody come back for the second? I'm kidding. No, uh, uh, quite a few people didn't. Oh, I'm quite a few people didn't. You know, it was absolutely horrifying. And but you, you realize that they got a hold of something there who was much more horrifying than any kind of make pretend cut a hand off would have been you know uh, uh, anything like that and it, that that gave us it opened such doors about theater and about what theater is and we all began to understand like it, why why theater is not a movie and what you know what it's about and all of that so and, and that has affected all of us all of us that were there in those days and did that work you know, show after show after show. 
Um, the only thing, um, I'm sad to say, the only thing I think I've actually seen uh, you perform uh, on stage was in a production of The Sunshine Boys um, with uh, my good friend Bill Oakes out at the uh, Second Story Theater. Um, and it touched my heart because a thousand years ago I stage managed a production in Summerstock and um, the actor who actually played your role uh, was a, a former teacher, local teacher, but he was a marvelous actor. In fact, he got his start in the live TV, you know, the GE theater stuff in New York City. Um, and, but he was a great guy and um, it was fun working with him. I wanted to get his wisdom and I wanted to flatter him. He was a great guy. So I said, what is the, what is the, I was a kid out of college at my first summer stock, paid summer stock job. And I said, what is the secret of theater? And he said, there are only three rules. Remember your jokes. Don't bump into the furniture and get the curtain down before the bars in town close. <laughs> Other than that, none of it matters. Well, it reminds me of, that reminds me of my, my, uh, my father had two, two things to teach me. I remember that I was, you know, working with him. I was about 250 pounds there when I was in Vegas with him. He said, two things to remember. He said, never turn your back on an audience. Your ass is too big. And know when to get off. That's, that's the, for that kind of show, that kind of act. I mean, that, the stuff that your father did was, and all vaudeville, precursors, obviously, stand-up comedians. Yeah. It's the same thing. You go out there and you're supposed to do an hour, half hour, whatever it is, and but you've got to know. You've got to have that sense that I've got 10 more jokes, but you know what? I'm either up, leave now, or I better run. That reminds me of something. When, when I was in, I told you, when I, that we're, you know, that we did the vaudeville in, in England, and there was one guy he did uh, he did uh, jokes he was a monologist he was very good and he had an assortment of jokes and he would work the audience you know depending on the audience he would tell certain jokes and so what he would do though he would come out light up a cigarette and start talking and when the cigarette got down to a certain length he would drop it on the floor grind it out with his foot do his last joke and leave and that's how he that's how he knew Perfect. to stick because in vaudeville time was very important he would, if you did 12 minutes, you couldn't do 13 because right. you, you'd get fired, you know? And that was his way of doing that. And I thought, and I, I, I took me a while to realize what he was doing. Once I, once I realized it, I thought, that is brilliant. It's you brilliant. Know? It's yeah. Brilliant. I, remember, I, did, I remember his name. His name was Johnny Silver. At least that was his stage name. I don't know. But, yeah. Oh, well, listen, Bob, this has been marvelous. Um, I, I, I want to come back. We want to do part two and part three. This is, uh, the stories obviously are endless and meaningful to you, but meaningful to us too. So I promised that we would circle around to a very happy unbirthday um, that I played at the top of this uh, podcast. Um, and of course, when I was looking it up the other day, I did not even realize that your father um, was, was singing that song. So he voiced the uh, March Hare. Correct. In the Disney, the original, which yeah. I think is. And, and, and Ed Wynn was the, was the Mad Hatter. Mad Hatter. And which, uh, do you have time for, I have a very quick Ed Wynn yeah, story. Yes, it's sensational. Ed Wynn went through exactly the same career slump my dad did, which by the way, is, Disney was brilliant. Walt, he knew just when to get people cheap. 
you know, he'd find, they used to say he gets them on the way up or the way down and he grabbed them. Ed was, Edwin was in the same career slump. And one day he was walking, he was out for a walk and a lady stopped cold and looked at him and said, Edwin, I, I thought you were dead. And he said, I am welcome. And on that note, this has been a, more, a, sun, a Saturday morning with Bob Colonna, uh, and I hope everyone's enjoyed it. And again, as I've said, and I mean this, I will be back to speak to Bob again. Don't uh, you threaten me. <laughs> so everybody out there, including Bob and lovely Pistachio, stay safe. Stay inside, and we're all going to come out and do theater till it comes out of our ears when this is all over. Again, absolutely. Thank you so much, Bob.